This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. The Big Interview, intriguing lives, remarkable careers, and gripping stories. I'm Sonal Rupani alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. What do you guys know about deep sea diving? <laughs> Not much. Absolutely nothing. So you can educate us from scratch. Yeah, it's, uh, it's something that I've... Um, it certainly occurred to me when I had a chat with Chris that there was a lot of parallels to be drawn with his lifestyle and what we're all being asked to do right now because he is someone who um, operates as a deep sea diver. He works off a boat called the Bibby Topaz, oh, beautiful which I thought is a great name. He works over in the North Sea. He was born in Edinburgh. He lives in Malague in the Highlands. Malague? Oh, yeah. nice. And uh, he's a saturation diver, which means that he uses a mixture of oxygen and helium to ward against the risks of decompression sickness when he dives because he operates at about 100 metres depth, <sighs> which um, means that you're, you, you basically have to live down there. These dives operate whereby they go into a chamber. And the interesting thing is they go into this chamber and um, they get pressurised in the chamber while still on board. So they get taken down to a pressure of 90 metres while still on the boat and then they get lowered down. And actually the pressure is such in the chamber that when you open the door, no water comes in. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. And he just works for a month on, month off kind of uh, So he's offshore. He works in schedule. oil rigs. Works on oil rigs, repairing those. So, listen, it's a crazy profession. A little bit of background before we get onto the Chris's story and why we, why we actually ended up interviewing him. How did Chris become, and it's a strange profession to get into, how did he become a deep-sea diver? Yeah, for me, um, I think many of my colleagues were drawn to diving because it was their, their passion. They were sort of scuba divers first and foremost, and they, they were looking for some way to expand their, their love of diving into a career but but that really wasn't the case for me at all it's not something I ever really did until I did it commercially and I fell into it really because sort of a friend's father found me a job when I was about 19 20 years old and kicking around and not really sure what to do with my life and um, he, he just got me a stopgap job really that happened to be on the the back deck of a, a diving ship so I got to see these these divers firsthand and um uh, it was something I didn't really know anything about at the time, so it was it was uh, it was intriguing to watch them, and it, it grew from there. Really, I think I decided they were uh, they seemed to pull up in fancier cars than me as well. That was <laughs> everything. So. so they're obviously paid very well. Yeah, for because doing listen, this. I mean, you are. It's you're, not only are you operating in in, a, in an environment where if something goes wrong, it's like being in outer space. Mm. Let's be honest. Yeah, you're right. There's no way you can't swim back to the top. Mm. You'll die. So um, this is what he explains here. I asked him how dangerous, how risky is deep sea diving? Being deep is, is, about, about, is about darkness and, uh, and it's also about not having the option to go to the surface because at 18 metres that is still an option. It might not be the safest one, but it is a possibility. Whereas when you get to 100 metres, uh, the surface simply isn't an option. That's, uh, that would be uh, instant death really from from explosive decompression so it, it just changes your perspective and your and your sort of safety line if you like a couple of questions here rob so he works in the oil industry he goes down and fixes the oil rigs essentially to make sure that they are secure yeah and safe. He, he said he does because i said to him what kind of work are you doing while you're down there and he said it's very varied i'm a glorified plumber basically hmm. i can be doing quite intricate stuff fixing pipes etc or i can be lugging sandbags around on the bottom of the sea floor so but what an environment it would be like traipsing around on the surface of the moon right so he goes down how long does he spend down there a month excuse me but wait no no here's here's the thing he's in a chamber so he's in a chamber which is attached to the boat they lower down they do the dive they get back in the chamber the chamber comes back up because the chamber's fixed at a 90 meter pressure 
Right. So he's always in a 90 meter pressure. But here, listen, this, this is this is interesting because I asked him, you, you're you are living in isolation and you in, in these times where we're having to, to sacrifice the kind of normal contact that we'd have with our fellow human beings. I asked him how tough this was as a job, as a profession. How tough was this life to life to cope with mentally? The diving is in many ways is the relief. Uh, it's the, that's the easy bit of the job. The, the difficult bit is living in close, co- close confines with, uh, with 12 other people, really, and being able to get on with people and yeah, and being able to fa- face that isolation because it's, it, it's, it's almost worse in some ways. Um, you know, people sort of make, uh, often compare it to, it's, more, it's a more than flattering comparison to sort of um, working in space in that t- they reckon it's quicker to get back from the moon than it is from the depths of a compression chamber. Because if your mother is to die, uh, if, you, uh, if your pancreas erupts, uh, it doesn't make any difference. You still have to face four or five or six days of decompression. There is, that is unavoidable. So you, you're basically locked in a, in a prison which you can't get out of. So you need to, you need to be somebody who can deal, deal with that first. Uh, have you ever had an emergency situation whereby you needed to leave your chamber before the four days was up? Th- that's just... It's simply not an option. Yeah, I mean, right. we've had, we have, and we've spent, you know, we can spend months in there at a time. So there's always things going on. You know, people's parents have died while we've been in there, and and they've had to come out. But it still has to be at that slow pace. I mean, there is a, there is a, an option to do it slightly quicker, but it, it really doesn't save you much. It still be days. So um, there is there is just no circum circumnavigating it. So you have to plan your life around that a little bit. You need to, you always need to know that you you can never get back to anything anything quick. That's insane. It's insane Man, listening it? to him there. They take it. When his shift is over, what they do is they decompress him one metre per hour. So he's 100 metres. It then takes 100 hours to bring him back to the surface. And he says, in a, in a weird way, he actually suffers a reverse of what you would describe as altitude sickness because he's been breathing helium. He talks like Daffy Duck while he's down there. He's breathing. We, at the surface, we breathe 20%. There's 20% of the, the surface level air is made up of oxygen. Down at 90 metres, he's breathing as little as 3% oxygen. He's actually breathing a concoction of helium and other gases because you would, give, you would be poisoned by oxygen at that depth. You would also suffer from nitrogen narcosis. There's very, very little room for manoeuvre and something went very badly wrong. What happened to Chris back in September 2012 while diving with his co-worker Dave Uassa, it is honestly, it's, it's crazy how he managed to survive this. I was working in, uh, in a structure about 90 miles east of Aberdeen, I think we were, which puts you pretty much in the middle of the, in the, middle of the North Sea. And we were, we were 90 metres down that day. The boat above us suffered uh, a catastrophic failure of what's called a dynamic positioning system. Now, that's a system which you find on many, many boats around the world, which uses GPS, it uses beacons on the seabed and, uh, and, and wind and tide gauges and things like that all fed through a central com- computer to instruct thrusters to basically hold the ship in one single position above the seabed. Now that's critical because that allows uh, the divers on the bottom to, to work without being pulled around by the boat because we're attached to this boat by, by umbilicals. Now these umbilicals are exactly as, as, as you would imagine basically. They are, they are lifelines and they supply us with our breathing gas, um, essentially an, an infinite amount of gas hot water which is pumped down and pumped around our suits to keep to keep us warm um, they provide lights for uh, electricity for lights and, uh, and also for a, for a camera which we have so they, they sort of give us everything we need to survive on the seabed and this this sort of dynamic positioning system is incredibly accurate in that we can be working on the bottom and i can ask the boat to move three meters on 
27 degrees and the boat will do exactly that even in a sort of four six seven eight gale almost it's, it's incredible system really when it works and um yeah unfortunately on this day uh, it was about 10 o'clock at night in fact in september 2012 uh, it had a we had a complete failure of this system and the boat started to drift away from from its its position uh in about a we think maybe about a 35 or 40 knot wind with with four or five meter sea so it was fairly rough so the boat was being pushed away quite quickly and unfortunately uh, we on the bottom uh, dave and i um were sort of instructed to, to to get ourselves clear of the structure we were working in uh, we were deep inside a, a manifold which is uh, like a metal structure about the size of a house in in the process of doing so dave managed to get himself out cleanly but in, in doing so i unfortunately caught uh, my umbilical on something and um, with the speed the boat was moving away it it tightened and became immovable extremely extremely quickly and there was basically nothing nothing at all I could do about it so there's a boat on the top of the surface being pushed away the system has gone into shutdown the system is no longer working and the the umbilical cord which is his lifeline is just being pulled away on this uh, on this boat um, or, and he's a hundred. He's a hundred meters deep. So it's a bad situation. Check this out. It was about to get a whole lot worse, as he explains here. Yeah, the boat was started to drift away, and we we're tethered tethered to the boat by these umbilicals. Mine had become caught, and the the boat weighs eight thousand tons. So I was effectively a, an anchor on the bottom, really, and there was only ever going to be one winner in that. So, as he said, it, it stretched and stretched, and and then it stretched to the point that it it broke. Um, and, and and did it at that point did it just snap away from you yeah completely yeah i mean i was uh i was sort of straddling the structure at the time trying to trying to free myself and i, I remember thinking my, my first thoughts were my, my legs were going to break i was i was being sort of pulled into this structure by my own umbilical but when it snapped i um the sort of the release of the tension meant that i fell fell backwards onto the the seabed which was about 10 meters below me but i was plunged into this most complete and absolute absolute darkness it was incredible. Couldn't see a speck of a speck of light in the in the sea above me. It was amazing. The, the, the main problem with that was, as I said, the umbilical provides us with this essentially infinite supply of gas. But as soon as I, I lost gas with the umbilical snapping, I was forced to turn on the emergency supply, which is a, a pair of bottles we carry on our back. Um, but at that depth, they're designed to last no more than maybe six or seven minutes, we think. We're not entirely certain, de- depending on how quickly you breathe. So as soon as that umbilical snapped, it meant that I was on a, on a clock, um, which, was, which was pretty desperate at the time. There were a couple of audible gasps from me there, because honestly, I can't imagine. Can you even imagine being plunged into utter darkness, the disorientation you would be feeling? down forget the darkness I, I get scared with the darkness here on dry land being plunged into darkness 100 meters down and the panic setting in because he said there they think it's six to seven minutes depending on your breathing i know me when i get panicked my heart race go my heart rate goes and you're gulping for air you're panicking i mean if you're that if you're in that situation, certainly at that moment of time, you're thinking, I've got a few minutes yeah. left to live. I mean, even listening to that story, I can't fathom mm. how he is alive and talking to us in this present moment. I, I'm not sure he can either, and as we're going to find out. Because, okay, so we pick it up. We're in pitch darkness. We're 100 metres under the surface of the North Sea. And between six and seven minutes only of breathable air in Chris's emergency tank. 
had no way of navigating and absolutely no reference as to where I was even. Uh, it was hard, hard enough to tell sort of which way was up from which way was down. And as I sort of said earlier, there is no safety option at that depth. You can't decide I'm going to swim up to the surface and take my chances. The only, literally the only place you can, you can get safety and, and, and be saved would be back into the diving bell. And I had absolutely no idea where that was. Um, it, it transpires that the boat had drifted some 240 metres away um, from me, so they were, they were absolutely nowhere near me at all. And because of that, they were unable to come back and help me, and they, they, they couldn't sort of, they were struggling desperately to get control of the boat. The, the computer system had crashed completely. The whole of the bridge had gone black, all of the navigation screens... In, in pretty severe weather. They themselves were fighting desperately um, and were absolutely nowhere, nowhere, near, nowhere near being in a position to, to come and rescue me, basically. What was going through your mind when you were essentially just waiting for the air to run out? To begin with, I was, you know, you have hope of, hope of rescue, really. I, was, I climbed back onto, up onto the top of this structure we'd been working on, fully expecting to see the diving bell there and, and be able to sort of uh, somehow save myself. But um, very quickly when I got to the top and I realised that uh, the diving bell wasn't there. I did the, the, the maths briefly in my head and, and worked out that the chances of my being saved were, were pretty much non-existent. And it's bizarre. It's, a, it's almost a strange calm came over me, I think, because it was such a... It was inevitable. I didn't feel there was any, any way of being able to rescue myself. So I think panic sort of subsided in me at that, at that stage. Uh, I don't remember being particularly frightened, um, but I remember being very, very sad, very sort of almost awash with disbelief really that this this thing was happening to me in this strange and and lonely place and your your thoughts turn of course to the people you love and uh, the life you're uh, you're going to be leaving behind we were well, I was my fiance she was at the time and I were due to get married just a few months later and uh, we were in the process of building a house um, it was a sort of exciting exciting time in our life so you reflect on that and you know reflect on a life that you you're going to you're not going to be able to live how scary is that? Forget the situation. The fact that you've got time to ponder that. Yeah. A lot of yeah, ways. Yeah, right. That's even scarier. It's not instantaneous. It's kind of this couple minutes worth oh. of... Yeah, it's not a car crash. It's not something that happens instantly. It's something where the clock is ticking. <sighs> and he was actually saying he couldn't even see his gauge because it was so dark. So oh, he didn't really goodness. know when he was going to run out of air. And, of course, as it transpires, he says, well, the boat's 240 metres away. He's got seven minutes. So, you know... Obviously, we were having that conversation, so we know the the, the ultimate outcome. But nonetheless, um, it gets even more bizarre because it led to the obvious question: um, What happened next? No, not really. I'm, I'm hoping you're going to tell me. To be honest, <laughs> I remember the gas lasting a little bit longer than I thought it would, and I didn't have the. It was so dark that I couldn't see the gauge. I didn't really have any sense of when it was all going to an end, which is probably a good thing because that would have been panic-inducing in itself. But eventually, I felt the the gas to dwindle and it got a bit harder to breathe and uh, and then I passed into unconsciousness and I don't have any particular memory of that last that last moment and we'll never know exactly how long it was that I managed to sort of keep going with the, the, the gas that I did have but it can't have been much more than you know maybe seven eight minutes at, at the most really uh, at which point I uh, yeah I passed into unconsciousness and the boat was still 240 meters away and they were they were desperately struggling to to control it what they did manage to get over to me after just a few minutes after I think our parts unconscious is a remotely operated vehicle that was on a had a tether that was 250 odd meters long so they were able to get that back to me which is one of the reasons the film got made really because we have all the footage from my our, the cameras on our on our diving helmets 
but also we had this footage from the remotely operated vehicle coming across me and finding my sort of prostrate body lying unconscious on the top of this structure and and twitching, which if you've seen it, is a bit of a it's a pretty harrowing harrowing watch of the best. Oh of my word! He's fallen unconscious on just seven minutes of oxygen left. The total darkness. He's completely disorientated. Oh what happens next? How much time had elapsed? I asked him whether there was a risk that as soon as the air ran out, he would be subjected to brain damage. The first thing to go is your brain, and uh, as you say, oxygen deprivation is, is, happens extremely quickly. So, yeah, um, I mean, the, the, yeah, the truth is it took them nearly 40, 40 minutes, basically, to rectify the fault on the boat and, uh, and be able to come back to, to rescue me. So that's an extremely long time, and... Um, when I was pulled, um, my, my colleague Dave Uassa was able to come down and, and drag me back up to the diving bell and he pokes my head into the, into the bell and uh, Duncan, my, uh, that we have a, has a third diver who stays in the diving bell every day, uh, was able to take my helmet off and I think just after a couple of breaths I, I came around straight away, which was miraculous really and uh, I was a bit groggy and drunk, drunk, sort of drunk feeling if you like and it took me a little while to come around completely but I was able to climb back up into the diving bell myself and recovered fairly quickly but yeah for me that you're absolutely right for me the miracle isn't so much that i survived it's, it's that i survived without without any permanent brain damage really or at least you know nobody's ever been brave enough to tell me otherwise you know so yeah 40 minutes you heard him say there he had seven minutes of emergency air maths is not my strong point <laughs> no, it isn't. but that is 33 minutes of being able to survive without breathing that's a bit of a stretch to me so i had to say come on chris give us an explanation when people ask for explanation, it's very hard to give you one. But I mean, I, I always assumed it was the the cold. You know, we I think many of us you hear stories of children falling through ice and, and surviving for long periods. And in hospitals, they they obviously cool bodies to a, to a, you know to near to near death almost in order to to slow all the the bodily functions down and and um, and operate on people. So you hear stories like that. So I always assumed that was the the chief reason that I survived. But I think on reflection, we've realised that it's it's mostly the gas that we were breathing. So we breathe this heliox, which particularly the uh, the the gas that we have on our in the tanks on our back, it has a quite a high percentage of oxygen. So it effectively, super saturated my tissues. Really, my, mm. all of my tissues are saturated with oxygen. Uh, all my organs are saturated with oxygen. Just you know, which which somehow managed to you know perhaps combined with the cold. Uh, managed to keep everything alive basically and stop cells from dying but i mean these are very much are all are all theories you know i've i've been to speak down at the royal medical society down in london and places like that and none of them can really offer me a, a particularly concrete explanation and um, they, they all what they do all agree on is that the margins must have been incredibly fine he's a miracle he, he is. is a walking miracle uh, yeah, even that- hearing him say it, it's hard to believe this story that you could survive without oxygen for that long for more than 30 minutes so is the cold it's like has, he's in cold storage yes it's reduced his heart rate to a point where six to seven minutes is what he thought uh, maybe just maybe there was enough oxygen well, in there with the heart rate lowering that that was able because 33 minutes he would have brain damage yeah of course of course but as he said, his, his organs, his whole body was so saturated with this incredibly rich air that he'd been breathing. It wasn't air that we know it. We know it, it yeah. It was, a ve- it was a concoction of heliox, as he says, which, um, which obviously gave his organs, gave his vital organs that extra breathing space, quite literally. Hmm. But the fact that he was able to survive for 33 minutes 
at the bottom. It beggars belief. And even he says he doesn't have the answer. He's spoken. He's gone to scientific medical colleges and spoken about this. And he is a walking miracle. The other thing that struck me was the instantaneous recovery. That he wasn't out cold for hours until he could kind of sort of slowly come to. That he climbed back into the bell himself. Yeah. That's that's bizarre as well. They stuck his head in, got some oxygen in him, and he. Well, it's a bit like I would imagine. It's a bit like if if you can suspend the the disbelief about how long he survived. It's a bit like being doused with cold water, given a bit of if you passed out and a bit of a a slap around the face, and oh, I'm here again. Yeah, you know, it would it would be just like that coming to like that, but of course under incredible circumstances. So there were other heroes in this story. How did the crew find Chris, and how ultimately did they haul him to safety? The umbilical which which we're tethered to the boat with is only 50 metres long. So whilst the boat was that far away, Dave was unable to get to me. He was he was completely powerless to, to help, which was extremely frustrating for him. But what they eventually did was they turned the system on the boat off and on again, really. We've got a, a Norwegian crew, and they call that the Swedish solution. But it's it's one we're all familiar with, you know, turning the computer off and on again. And that's what rebooted it, basically. So once they'd done that, all their navigations, they have, you know, very complex navigation screens and they were able to guide the boat back to the position we were in but also the rov knew where it had managed to find me um i had a i was carrying a beacon so they sort of were able to get a range and bearing off a beacon i was carrying uh, to get back to me so dave um, when he effected the rescue was actually lowered to only a couple of meters above me so he just had to drop that last couple of meters down and pick me up and and drag me up but um again that's all on film and with the movement of the boat and everything, you can um, you can sort of begin to appreciate it was an incredibly difficult task. And he's a very physically strong man, Dave. Um, you know, and he really, really fought and struggled to get me up there. So I'll you know I'll forever be in his in his death. So having had six minutes to contemplate what he thought was his impending death, Chris was suddenly presented with another chance at life. And I asked him to describe the emotion in the immediate aftermath when he came back round. Yeah, I think I get asked often is, did, you know, did, is, is it an epiphany? Do you sort of get up every day and, um, and, and breathe the air in and thank, you know, thank, thank the heavens you're alive? And it's never really been like that for me, which is strange. I don't know. I think in a, in a weird way, we were really pretty much unaffected by it because particularly the three of us who are in the water, we had this almost euphoria that we'd come through it. Uh, many of those who had to actually witness it on the boat, I think, have, were much more scarred by the experience because they had uh, you know, everything sort of televised, there were screens all over the boat, and they, can, they were able to, they had to effectively watch uh, what they thought was a colleague dying on the seabed for those 40 minutes. But, yeah, for me, I don't know, life sort of just goes on, and I'd like to think I was a you know, reasonably positive, forward-looking person before that. Life goes on. There's a, that's, I mean, that's downplaying the whole thing, isn't it? Well, he got straight back in. And this is the thing, because I said to him, listen, the last thing I would do, you would never catch me in a yeah. deep sea diving operation ever again if that had happened to me. He got straight back in. In fact, he dived again during that particular rotation. And he, said, he said that the brain, we sort of discussed it actually, and it's almost like your brain short circuits and it protects you, it shields you from these traumatic experiences by adding this level of surrealness, which mm. means it, didn't, it almost didn't even happen to you. But nonetheless, I put it to him that it was incredible that he chose to resume his diving straight away what motivated that decision i mean you make it sound very brave and i can assure you i'm not a very i'm not a particularly brave person <laughs> it was uh, yeah it was strange really i think again it's i think at the time we probably didn't appreciate the magnitude of what had happened uh, i can remember being far more concerned about my career you know that i would sort of I'd worked sort of my whole life to that point to get to to be able to do that particular job and i thought oh, that's it that's blown and so um, they asked for volunteers to go back and, you know, we put our hand up straight away and they sort of laughed at us. But um, 
in some ways it was a case of getting back on the bike as well. I think if uh, if we hadn't done it, then maybe we'd, we would never have done it at all. Um, and in fact, it was it was fine going back. There was there was no real problem whatsoever. I think it was much harder for people we left behind. So much harder to explain to my to my wife and um, you know and your parents that you're going you're going to go and put yourself in harm's way again. And um, strangely, having made the film, which has sort of forced me or forced us even to to look back and examine things and you know, talk about things a lot more than we perhaps did at the time, you realise I was I realised I was perhaps a little a little selfish in that and I didn't discuss it with with people enough. Um, I was maybe a bit blase and, and naive, as I say, about, about the sort of uh, yeah, the magnitude of what had happened. Really. I suppose so, given the four day time delay of getting you back up to the surface, your wife would have been told he nearly died but then he didn't. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I took, the, I took the, 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 again, a completely naive decision not to tell her. I, I think I said to myself, you know, this, I didn't really think it was that big a deal. I thought, I've had a bit of a scare here. There's no sense in frightening her. I just won't tell her. So um, uh, we were, during that sort of four days of decompression, I think about a day and a half, two days in, somebody came over the communications box in the chamber and said, you know, Chris, this, the papers have got hold of it. You might, you might want to ring, yeah. <laughs> ring your wife. Give her so, a heads up. Yeah, exactly. So I did. I, did. I remember calling actually because we we speak with this ridiculous voice that's almost unintelligible over the phone. So it's hard to communicate at home. And I called, and uh, she had a friend around, and she picked up and she hung up on me. I think at least three times before I could, you know, get across to her that it was me and could I speak to Mor- to, to Morag. And um, so I, I, when I eventually got hold of, her, I told her the story in the third person, really, and sort of explained what had happened, and then let the cat out of the bag at the end that it was me. And yeah, she was. She was pretty distraught, actually, and um, you know, you, again, you don't you don't really realise how much it's going to affect other people. But um, she she wasn't really able to to get to me because we still had two days locked in that in that chamber. But she was um, she was waiting for me as soon as I got out. That was for sure. Chris Lemons, there, great story. I really enjoyed speaking to him. Really nice guy as well. Yeah. Uh, he was very very um, generous with his time as well. You can find out more about Chris on his website, chrislemons uk and of course that netflix documentary last breath well worth a watch as well chris is currently dabbling in public speaking and i think he's going to make a big success of it because he speaks very well thank you for listening and if you've enjoyed this episode we'd love it if you could subscribe rate and give us a review this podcast was presented by chris mccarty sonal rupani and robbie greenfield and produced by tom paul smith we hope you join us next time on the big interview